Well, it's great to be with you guys this morning. My name is Blake. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Grace. Uh, I come bearing gifts this morning. If you look, un- if you're on an, an edge of an aisle and you look under your seat, on one end of the aisles there's a handout. So please grab that stack of handouts, take one, and pass it down. I'm going to be preaching to you guys for the next few weeks, and I will have a handout for you each Sunday, because I like that. I enjoy handouts. You get to fill in the blanks, and it's fun. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to walk you through the whole Bible. So from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, I'm going to take you through the entire story of Scripture. That's going to be a lot. We're going to move very fast. This is going to be more like a seminary class than a sermon. And so you have to start with the why. Why are we going to put forth all of this effort to go all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? Well, I learned this material about 20 years ago. Before that, whenever I was going to spend time in the Bible, the Bible was like a grab bag to me, full of weird stories and ancient commands. And so on any particular day of the week, I'd wake up and I'd think, well, I need to have a quiet time today. So I'd reach into my grab bag and pull something out. Hey, what am I going to get today? Ooh, David and Goliath. I like that story. Okay, let's read that. Okay, next day, reach into my grab bag, pull something out. This one's about a lady named Jezebel who gets eaten by dogs. I don't really want to read that. Let's put that back in the grab bag. No idea what to do with that one. Okay, let's reach back in. Let's look. Oh, the Ten Commandments of the Law. That's good, right? Okay, let's put the law here. That's good. Okay, next day I wake up, reach in. Oh, I'm in the New Testament now. It's the book of Romans, chapter 10, where Paul says, for all who believe, Christ is the end of the law. Wait a minute. The law is sitting there. What do I do with that? For most of my life, the Bible was just this grab bag full of weird stories and ancient commands, and some of them fit together and some of them didn't. I kind of read the Bible like you read Twitter. I had no idea how stuff fits together, and some of it's just crazy, and it didn't fit. Until 20 years ago, Brian Fisher walked a number of us, including Matt Morton and Chris Thompson and me, through cover to cover. The story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and suddenly I saw that there is actually one grand story that all the pieces fit into. All of it comes together in this one amazing story. It's the greatest novel ever written about a God who loves me and has an amazing plan for human history. It's a story that I fit into, and all of a sudden my relationship to the Bible changed. From that point forward, the Bible made sense to me. It was this incredible story that I wanted to read and I wanted to tell people about. And my hope is that over the next few weeks, your relationship to the Bible will be transformed just like mine was. As you come to see the Bible as one grand story about what God is doing in this world. It's a story that centers on Jesus. As you can see from my signs that I had made up and brought over and from the chart that's on the top of your handout, the whole Bible points to Jesus. So this is one of those times where the Sunday school answer is correct. What is everything about Jesus? Everything in the Old Testament points forward to him. Everything in the New Testament points back to him. He is the center of the story. But we've got a lot to cover before we can get to Jesus. And so to help us understand the story, what I've done is divide it into nine chapters for you. Okay, so nine key words that you can see on your chart. You can see them here on my uh, little visual here. Today, we're going to cover creation, revolt, and promise. That's the first 
third of the story of the Bible. Not by page count, but by the flow of the story. Next week, we'll look at law, king, and hope. And then the final week, we'll let, look at Jesus and then the church and shalom. So that's where the story is going. If you can get those nine chapters, those nine words, then you have the whole story of the Bible from cover to cover. So we're going to jump in this morning with creation. You can turn to chapter 1 of Genesis. We're going to start at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Your handout today is going to walk you through these first three chapters. So creation, revolt, and promise. You can fill in the blanks as we go. I've given you key passages each week. And then at the very end, I've given you reflection questions. We won't get to those in the sermon. We don't have time. And so this handout is meant for you to take it with you, to read these passages over the course of the week, and to spend some time in these reflection questions, letting this material sink in. You need time for it to sink in so you really understand it. Okay, so take this handout with you. We're going to start with the first chapter in our story with creation. And so we pick it up in Genesis chapter 1, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. And I'm just going to read a few verses here. Let's start in the very beginning, verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Now let's skip down all the way to verse 26 when we enter the picture. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And now skip down to the last verse, verse 31. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is proven to be one of the most controversial chapters of the Bible in the history of the church. People have been arguing for hundreds of years about how to fit this chapter in with what we learn about modern science. Actually, though, here's the key if you want to understand Genesis chapter 1. It's not really about how or when the earth was made. Genesis chapter 1 is primarily about who made it and why. Who and why are the questions for which Moses wrote Genesis chapter 1? Not to tell you when it was made or how it was made, the mechanics. It's about who. It's about who. Genesis chapter 1 declares that the whole universe was made by one great sovereign God. That is a a radically different answer than you would have heard from any other ancient religions. There's lots of stories in the ancient world about how the world was made. And in almost all of those stories, the world is a product of divine warfare. There's a pantheon of gods battling, and, and the earth is the result of, the earth is either the battlefield of the gods, or more often, the earth is actually the corpse of a vanquished god. But the Bible declares, no, it's not a battlefield, it's none of that. There is one almighty God, and he is good. 
And creation, it's not war. Creation is simply his speech. He spoke into being the entire universe simply as an act of will. The Bible is about an incredibly good, powerful, sovereign God who created a universe that is, in the last part of that chapter, so important, the universe is very good. As he made it, it is wonderful. So the first question Genesis 1 answers is who? You're one great, almighty, good God. Second question, why? Why did this great and good God create this very good universe? The answer is for us, for humanity. We are the pinnacle of creation. He made the entire universe for us. Again, that's radically different than any answer you would get in any other ancient religion. In all of these other creation fables and other religions, humanity is either an accidental byproduct of divine warfare or was created to be slave labor for the gods. But the Bible says no. The Bible says we are the greatest thing God has made. We're the most valuable thing to God in all of the universe because we alone are made in the image of God. And so all of creation was made for us. All the rest of creation, it's important, is good. We are what? We are very good in God's sight. And so the Bible gives incredible value to human beings. The whole world was made for us. It's God's good gift to us. He made it as a home for us. You may have noticed at the beginning of Genesis 1, the earth is what? The earth is formless and void, meaning it can't support human life. It's not a home for us. And so in Genesis 1, what is God doing? He is ordering and forming and filling the world so it can be a good home for human beings. It's all for us. So Genesis 1, it's not a story about science. It's a story about incredible love. The love of a creator for his human creatures. It's about him making a wonderful home for us so that we, in his image, can glorify him. Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Because that's really central here. That's the most important thing about humanity here at the beginning of the story. We are made in the image of God. Let's talk about that for a moment. No other life is said to be made in the image of God. This is only true for human beings. And so what it means to be made in the image of God is at least three things. And conveniently for me, they all start with the letter R. And so let me walk you through them. To be made in the image of God means, number one, we alone can relate to God. Human beings can have a relationship with God. That's not true of any other forms of life. It tells us in John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's not true of a dog or a cat. They can't be children of God. You can't. Human beings can have a familial relationship with God. You can actually call God your father. That's not some kind of spiritual... He Really, he is your father because you can relate to God. That's uniquely true of human beings. First part of being made in the image of God. Second part, we alone can reflect God's character. We alone can make moral, righteous choices like God does. We're told in 1 Peter 1.15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Human beings alone have the gift of moral choice. You realize a dog can't make a moral choice. So I have a dog at home. If she decides today, instead of eating my food, I'm going to chew your furniture. You realize there's no sin in that, right? 
There's no righteousness. I might be upset about it, but it's just an instinctual choice. There is no morality for a dog, but there is for us. Made in the image of God means we uniquely have the ability to reflect God's moral character. That's actually why God does a really strange thing in the next chapter. I don't know if this has ever bugged you. It bugged me for a long time. What does God plant right in front of Adam and Eve? The forbidden tree. Tree of knowledge of good and evil. It puts it right in front of them. It says, don't eat it or you'll die. And I always wondered, well, why there? Like, why can't you put that up on Mount Everest or better yet, just send it to Mars? Can it be on Mars where none of us can touch it and we don't fall? Why did God plant that tree there? Because it was a gift. It was a gift of moral choice. Without that forbidden tree, Adam and Eve could not live out the image of God because they'd have no opportunity to make a moral choice like God does. They could only be fully human with a real moral choice. Okay, so the tree is a gift. So second part of being made in the image of God, we are able to reflect God's character unlike any other form of of life. Third, we are able to radiate God's glory with our bodies. We can radiate his glory to the universe. We're told in Psalm 8, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. And when David wrote that, he's not just talking in metaphor. God has crowned you with glory and majesty. If you want proof of that, think for a moment. If you happen to know the story, when Moses would go hang out with God in the tabernacle, when he came out of there, what did he look like? A light bulb. He shone so much that he freaked out the Israelites. They made him wear a veil because they were so scared. Jesus, Elijah, Moses, when they're hanging out on the Mount of Transfiguration, what do they look like? Light bulbs. They're glorious. That's not a one-time deal. That is what your body was made to do. Proof is Daniel chapter 12. In the resurrection, your body will shine like the stars of heaven. That is why your physical body matters to God. It is a majesty reflector. It is designed to shine like the stars in heaven. It doesn't yet. It won't until the resurrection. But in the resurrection, you will literally shine with God's visible glory. Made in the image of God means that humanity alone was designed to relate to God in family, reflect God's character through our moral choices, and radiate God's glory with our bodies. And the result of these three things being true of human beings is that we can rule God's world. God designed us with this ability so that we could rule his world. God's design for you is not just to get you to heaven. A lot of Christians misunderstand that. They think like the ultimate good, the goal of your life is to get you to heaven. No, 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 no. Well, you get heaven, but God has a lot more in plan for you, a lot more in store for you. You were created to rule God's world. It was very clear in Genesis 1. Theologians call that the dominion mandate. Humanity was designed by God to be kings and queens ruling God's universe. You were designed to to fill and subdue God's world for God's glory. And that leads us to kind of the big idea of the Bible, like the theological one-sentence summary of what God is doing in the Bible. It's this, the big idea of the Bible, God is glorifying himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through humanity glorifying himself. We mean that God is displaying, he is sharing, he is revealing his beauty, his majesty, his love, his goodness to all of creation. How is he doing that? By growing, by establishing his kingdom, meaning his rule, his authority on earth. He's building his kingdom on earth and and he's doing it through us. 
through human beings. That's what's so valuable, so amazing, so unique about human beings is we were designed to be God's own kingdom representatives, establishing his kingdom for his glory on earth. So there's been a lot in the news lately about abortion. This passage speaks directly to that issue. So why do we believe that an unborn child has value, has dignity equal to all of our dignity because of the image of God theology? Because that unborn child in the womb has the the same image of God that the 110-year-old on their deathbed has. Same image of God that white, black, Hispanic, Asian, all rich, poor, PhD educated, dropout, immigrant, citizen, all of us have the same dignity before God because all of us are made in the image of God, to rule God's world. So as we end chapter 1 of this story, we see that a loving God has created humanity in His image to rule His world. It's really good up to this point. Unfortunately, it doesn't end here. keeps going, and you know where the story's going. So chapter 2, revolt. This chapter is about how humanity revolts against God. I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the movies. Um, Quite enjoyable to me. My wife, Julie, she loves the first five minutes, and that's it. For the first five minutes, you're in Hobbiton, and it's really nice. And the hobbits are eating, and they're drinking, and they're throwing a big party, and it's really pleasant. She likes that part, but after five minutes, the ring enters the picture, and the wheels fall off, and you spend the next nine hours watching countless creatures hack each other to death in this (laughs) battle between good and evil. Well, that is pretty much the story of the Bible. You get five minutes that are good, and then the wheels come off because humanity chooses sin. And so Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to look. The Bible begins in a paradise where humans are loved and honored and where everything is very good, but it doesn't last long. So look with me, chapter 3. Let's read the story. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the tree of the garden, we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So most of you know this story. You know what's happening here. We talked about that forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had planted it in the middle of the garden and then he had warned Adam and Eve, do not eat from that tree. If you do, you will surely die. And in Hebrew it reads literally, you will die, die meaning you will experience death in all its forms. And so God gave them this this gift of a moral choice. He communicated clearly what the consequences are. And for a while, Adam and Eve obeyed. We don't know how long, but things were going well. They walked with God in the cool of the day. But at some point, the enemy shows up, Satan in the guise of a snake. And we don't know much about him. The Bible says very literal about angelic and demonic beings. We know that he was created by God, a beautiful angel. He was good. He was majestic. He was in heaven with God. At some point in the distant past, he faced a choice. He could choose in humility to worship God or in pride worship himself, and he chose self. 
in that moment, he became God's enemies and devoted himself to the destruction of all God loves. God loves humanity, so he comes after us. And so he enters the garden, and he comes to Adam and Eve, and he tempts them with the same temptation he faced. It's interesting to see the parallels. So he's tempting Adam and Eve with what? With pride. You can be like God yourself. You don't have to worship him. You don't have to obey him. You can be your own God. The root of all human sin is pride. The sin you deal with, the sin I deal with, that's always true. At the root of it, at the core of it, is pride. Will I let God be God and obey him in humility, or will I choose to take the reins of my life and call the shots? So he tempts them with pride, and unfortunately, they choose the same thing that Satan did. They, they take of the apple. And the moment that they do, rather than getting the divinity that Satan promised, they get death, which is what God warned them about. Death enters the human experience. And one of the things that's important to understand about the word death here in Genesis chapter 3, it is so much bigger than what we mean by death in English. God warned them, you will die, die, meaning you will experience all of the pain and suffering that sin brings into the human experience. And, and they do. It begins immediately. And so let's, let's see what the results of sin are as it brings death in all its forms. Result number one comes in verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. A lot of people get hung up on all the nakedness in these first few chapters of Genesis. What, that, what is that about? It's not about nakedness. It's about unashamedness. They didn't know to wear clothes because they didn't know what shame was. I don't even know if they had a, a name for the feeling of shame. Can you imagine that? Going through your whole life and you can't even conceive of shame, but now they can Verse 7 is the birth of shame. Suddenly, for the first time in their existence, they feel this incredibly uncomfortable thing deep in their soul, and they're desperate to cover themselves. That's what it's about, not nakedness. They're trying to cover their shame. So this is the birth of shame. Happens immediately. Second result of sin, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself. This is a birth of fear. This is another concept. I don't know that Adam and Eve even had a word for it before this moment. Fear. They had never felt fear of anything. All of a sudden they're afraid of God. They're afraid of punishment. Third, immediate consequence, verse 11. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the birth of blame. Before this moment, there was perfect Harmony and love between Adam and Eve and God in creation. Everything was just as it should be. Now blame enters the picture. And Adam is blaming both Eve and God. And Eve is blaming the serpent. So shame, fear, and blame. And what is remarkable here is you notice God has not yet cursed them. The judgment hasn't come into the picture. So shame, fear, and blame, those are simply hardwired into the physics of this universe. If a human being chooses sin, you get shame, fear, and blame as certainly as if you throw something up, it will come down. This is simply a natural law of the universe we live in. You will always have shame, fear, and blame if you choose sin. 
So these come immediately and unbidden. But then God renders judgment. The curse begins. Let's jump down to verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken... For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam and Eve begin to experience all of these curses of death that God brings into their life. The first is death of labor. Work is not part of the curse. Work is good. You were designed by God to do good stuff. But at this point, labor comes under the curse and it is broken. Both of their labors, for Eve bearing children, now it will be painful and full of risk and even death. For Adam, working the land for food, now it will be cursed. It will be full of toil and suffering. So there's death of labor. Then there's death of relationships. The marriage bond is, is broken at this point. Strife enters the picture between human beings and between husband and wife. And strife enters between humans and creation. Now creation and humanity are at war with one another. Third, there's death of our bodies. This is the beginning of human death. We would say that Adam and Eve were created provisionally immortal, meaning that as long as they stayed in the garden, in the presence of God, their physical bodies were exempted from the natural law of entropy that causes everything in the universe to decay. But they're kicked out of the garden, out of God's presence, and now, like all other things in this universe, their bodies enter into the natural process of decay and they move towards death. So this is the birth of death for the human race. And finally and worst of all, the death of our spirits. This is when the spiritual part of humanity is separated from God. Rather than being God's children in this loving relationship with God, we become God's enemies. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. From this point forward, all humans will be born into opposition against God. Children of wrath under his just judgment. From this point on, we will need salvation. We will need redemption. Adam and Eve didn't before this. But now they will, and so will we. Because we're born enemies of God and need to be rescued from that. So Adam and Eve experience death in all of its forms. Things are horrible at this point. And yet, and this is incredible, right in the middle of this horrible, awful, no good chapter is an amazing promise. Look with me at verse 14. We skipped this earlier. Verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now at first, God is just talking about snakes why they crawl, don't have arms. I don't know if they had legs before this. My son asked me that the other day. I don't know what's going on there in verse 14. I know that at the beginning of verse 15, it's explaining why we and snakes don't get along very well. 
There's enmity between humanity and snakes. But the remarkable thing is that in the second half of verse 15, the pronouns change. They go from plural to singular. And so I've underlined them here on the screen. God goes from speaking to all snakes and all human beings to speaking to one snake and one human being. He, one male descendant of Eve, shall bruise you, you one snake who is actually Satan, on the head, and you, Satan, shall bruise him, the one male descendant of Eve, on the heel. Now, you crush a snake in the head, that's a death blow for the snake, but if a poisonous snake bites you in the heel before we had any antivenom, you're going to die as well. So these are dual death blows. This is the first promise of the gospel. This is the hint that God has a solution in mind. God is not going to give up on the human race. He's going to conquer our enemy, and miraculously, he's going to do it through a child of Eve. Through one son of Eve, our enemy Satan will be defeated. The problem of sin will be fixed. We will be brought back to the garden, but it will cost the life of that son of Eve. So this is the first promise of the gospel. This is why we have hope. Now let's be clear. They're not hearing Jesus in this. They don't know anything about Jesus, son of God, on the cross, dying, rising from the dead. They don't know any of that yet. They just know we have hope. They just know God hasn't given up on us. Somehow, through the human race, God is going to deliver the human race. And so actually, from this moment on, human beings begin to wonder every time they have a son, is this the one who will finally deliver us from our enemy? So there is hope in the midst of this. A deliverer will come, but it is still a very long ways off. And if you know how Genesis unfolds, things don't get better in the next few chapters. So next chapter, human beings go from stealing an apple to killing each other. Cain kills Abel. A couple chapters later, violence has grown to such epic proportions on earth that God has to hit the reset button with a flood, wipe out the human race with the exception of Noah and his family. They don't do a whole lot better. A few chapters later, they end up at the Tower of Babel, which again is all about pride. Let's build a tower up to the heavens so that we can be like God. God shows up and says, no, that's not going to work. And so God judges them, and in judgment, what God realizes is every time I allow the human race to work together, to unify, they unify in rebellion. So I'm going to divide them up. And so that's what God does. God scatters us. He confuses our language, divides us into different families, people groups, nations. He divides the human race so that he can save the human race one people group at a time. So we enter a new phase of the story, and that's where we're going next. Next chapter the chapter of promise. So God has not given up on us. He has a plan to fix what humanity has broken, a plan that begins with a promise made to a very significant person named Abraham. Abraham, if you uh, know only one other person in your whole Bible than Jesus, it should be Abraham. The whole Bible comes back to Abraham in one way or another. He's incredibly important to the story. His story is monumentally important to everything that follows in the rest of the Bible. Abraham is incredibly important, and we meet him in Genesis chapter 11. So if you turn to Genesis 11, we're going to pick up the story towards the end of the chapter when Abraham is introduced. At this point in his life, just so you know, he has a shorter name, Abram. He will get the longer name later. So, chapter 11, verse 27. 
Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai, that's Sarah, Abraham's wife, was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we meet Abraham around 2000 BC. So for the first time we have a date on our chart. We don't know any dates for anything before that. Abraham was born about 2090 BC, as best we can tell. And we meet Abraham, here's a little map for you of the world, in a city called Ur. It would be in modern-day Iraq, down about where the Euphrates and Tigris come together. And God calls him to leave that part of the world and travel to what we tend to call the Promised Land, or Israel. God says, if you will leave your family and travel to this new land, I will do amazing things for you. Now, when the promise comes to Abraham, Abraham has two big problems. When you first meet him, two big problems in his life. Number one, he's an idolater. He's an idolater. The whole city of Ur was built around the worship of the moon. Actually, their architecture was designed to lead the whole city in the worship of the moon. And according to the book of Joshua, Abraham and his family participated in that. So Abraham wasn't a child of our God. He worshiped another God. And and that tells us that even here at the very beginning of the Bible, what is God's operating principle? It is grace. He does not choose worthy people. He chooses unworthy people to become recipients of his blessings. However, God's plan for the human race is the same. He wants us to become faithful to him as his image bearers so we can rule the earth for him. Abraham's got a long ways to go for that. Abraham needs to be transformed because when we meet him, he's an idolater. He's not even aligned with our God. So that's his first problem. He's an idolater. Second problem, he's childless and he's pretty old at this point. It's like 75 years old when we first meet him. He's childless, and that's hard at any time in human history. But in the ancient world, that was deadly. That, that was an absolute curse. Why? Because a person's security and significance were completely dependent on having children. There was no social safety net. That was your whole life. You've got to have kids. Abraham didn't. Okay, So Abraham is an idolater, and Abraham is childless, and the rest of the Abraham story is about how God is going to fix these two problems. That solution begins with this amazing promise that we read. We call this promise the Abrahamic covenant. God promises Abraham three amazing things. First of all, land. And later in the story, God actually spells out the exact boundaries of that land. If you've never known this before, here is actually the promised land. It's not what we think of as modern Israel. 
Israel. It's absolutely everything from the Nile River in Egypt to the Euphrates River in Mesopotamia. All that is promised to Abraham and his descendants as an eternal possession. So he's promised land and seed, meaning descendants. You'll have kids, we'll have kids, on and on. And blessing, which is kind of a generic term for fame and security and prosperity. He will be blessed. And the greatest promise of all, the most important, is at the very end of verse 3, God promises that in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That promise is huge. That promise gets picked up all the way through the rest of the Bible. In your family, in your genetic code, all the rest of the earth will be blessed. And so think about biblical history as kind of a funnel. At first, who is going to be the deliverer? Who's going to crush Satan and deliver us from sin? Well, it's going to be a son of Eve. It means any male human being. But now the funnel has narrowed. Now it's going to be a descendant of Abraham. From this family, the deliverer will come who will bring blessing to the whole human race. Okay, so now we know more than we did about this deliverer. This promise is formalized into a covenant, covenant used for the first time in chapter 15. A covenant is a, is a binding contract between God and Abraham. So it's formalized into the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 15. Turn to chapter 15, though, because something even more amazing happens. In chapter 15, we learn about how salvation works for the first time. So Genesis chapter 15, really significant, verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, and he, that is God, took him, that is Abraham, outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And God said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then Abraham believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Reckoned it to him as righteousness, that is a technical term for what we call justification. God is declaring Abraham to be righteous in his sight. This is the moment that Abraham is delivered from sin. Now, it could be that Abraham was saved before this, and he just exercised faith many times. This is a particular moment that Moses points at. Not sure, but the point is we learn. Salvation is always by faith alone. It is simply by believing God's promise that Abraham is declared righteous. That is always how salvation works. All the way from the beginning of Genesis to all the way at the end of Revelation, it is never by works. It is never by law. It is always by faith alone. Now, faith in what? Abraham didn't know about Jesus at this point. All he knew was there's a God who exists. He is good. He is powerful. And he's made promises to me that he will keep. Abraham believed that information and God said, you are righteous in my sight. We know much more than Abraham did, so we have to believe more. We know about Jesus and the cross and the empty tomb. So the content of faith changes with time, but the basic principle doesn't. Human beings are always saved by faith alone. That's always how it works. So chapter 15, we know at this point at least Abraham is saved by faith alone, but he still has those same two problems, right? He still doesn't have a son, and he's still struggling to be like God. He still struggles with sin a lot, actually. In chapter 12 and again in chapter 20, he does a horrible thing. He gives in to fear and he gives away his wife to be a concubine of a king because he's afraid that that king will kill him. Apparently, Sarah was amazingly beautiful. He gives in to fear and God has to step in and deliver Sarah. And so Abraham has these moments throughout his life where he fails. 
he falls into doubt, he falls to fear, he falls to disobedience, and so God still has to transform him. So Abraham's two problems are still the same. He doesn't have a child yet, he doesn't have a son, and he's still not reflecting God's character. So God eventually is going to fix those. God is still at work in Abraham's life despite his failures and his struggles. The first part of the solution comes in chapter 21 of the story when God finally gives them a son. Chapter 21, God gives Sarah Isaac when she's 90 years old. So it is clearly a miracle. It's amazing. They have a child. So now that part of Abraham's story is solved. The second part, transforming Abraham, that comes in the climax of our story, which is chapter 22. Turn to chapter 22. Most important chapter in the story of Abraham. He's got a son, but now will he grow to be like God, to obey God no matter what. Chapter 22, verse 1. Now, it came about after these things, after Isaac was born, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. An unbelievably hard command. Abraham, you've wa- Abraham was about 100. Sarah was 90 when Isaac was born. You've waited your whole life to have this boy now go offer him as a sacrifice to me. Can't imagine how hard that would be. Just gut-wrenching command. And yet, amazingly, Abraham obeys without hesitation. Look at the next verse. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He doesn't wait a moment. Saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Can can you imagine traveling with your son for three days? You're on a camping trip. Every night you're setting up the fire, you're getting into your tent, and all along you're the only one who knows at the end of this camping trip, I'm going to have to kill my boy. Yet Abraham obeys. Day after day, he marches towards Mount Moriah. Jump to verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. No hesitation, no delay. He's obeyed to the utter end. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. So God stops Abraham at the last possible moment and provides a substitute, this ram, to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. God would never have Abraham actually kill Isaac. God loves our kids more than we do. After this, we'll find out God never wants humans sacrificed to him. So why this command? Well, ultimately, God gives this command to Abraham as an opportunity to to show to the world how much he had grown in faith. It is remarkable. Did you know that Abraham, short of maybe Jesus, is the most revered person in the history of the human race? All three monotheistic faiths, us, Jews, and Muslims, all revere Abraham as an incredible follower of God based on what event? This one. This event literally makes Abraham famous to tens of billions of people for thousands of years because at this moment we know Abraham will obey God even when nothing makes sense. 
Even when he is walking in pain and in the dark and can't figure God out, he will still obey. He will still trust God. So this is an incredible opportunity for Abraham to demonstrate that he has grown to be like God. And what that tells us is is this story about Abraham is not just about God's promise. It's also about his process of transforming Abraham into his likeness. This whole story is kind of a a prototype for our lives. You want to know how God is working in you. Yes, saved by faith in chapter 15, but then God is going to continue to work in your life to transform you into an example of righteousness and faith to the world. And from that, we learn that God's gifts are always designed to help us grow. When God blesses you, he's not doing that for no reason. He's blessing you for the purpose of growing you to be more like Jesus. He's growing you just like he grew Abraham. That's always what God is at work doing in your life. Because Abraham grew in obedience, he grew in faith, God sealed the covenant with an oath, making it irrevocable. There's a really significant moment. A few verses later, look at verse 16. God says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. That's the first time that God swears in the whole Bible. He swears an oath by himself, meaning on himself, on his name. God takes a divine oath, declares the Lord. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is the moment when God takes a covenant. And there are some covenants in the Bible God makes that he sets aside later. He sets them aside, but not this one. Why? Because at this moment, he swears it on oath. That is the highest thing God can do in the entire Bible. If he wants to take a promise and tell you it can never, ever, ever be taken away, he swears it as an oath upon his own name. What motivates God to turn this covenant into the most binding thing possible, an oath? It's Abraham's obedience. The fact that Abraham stepped up and obeyed. He was saved in chapter 15. Now, what if he would have disobeyed in chapter 22? We don't know exactly what would have happened. He wouldn't have gone to hell. He would go to heaven because he was saved by faith alone. But I assume he would have lost the covenant. Maybe it would go to Isaac. Maybe it would go to a whole other family. We don't know. What we do know is that because he followed faith with radical obedience, at this moment, the covenant becomes irrevocable. It becomes a binding oath that God has to fulfill even after Abraham's descendants do horribly wicked things. They're going to totally blow it in the next few pages. They're going to do awful things, and yet God never takes the covenant away. Why? Because Abraham obeyed, and then God turned it into an oath. And the point of all that is to say, yes, we're saved by faith alone, but our obedience matters to the plan of God in our lives. If you want to become the kind of person that changes human history for the better, you must obey. If you want to become the kind of person who leads people to Christ for generations to come, you must obey. Faith alone is enough to get you to heaven, but God wants far more for you than that. He wants you to glorify him by establishing his kingdom on earth, and that requires Abraham-like obedience. So Abraham obeyed and everything in his story worked out fine. But here's the great irony. As best we can tell, on this same mountain where Abraham's son was spared, God's own son was not. As best we can tell, Mount Moriah is the same place where Jesus was crucified 2,000 years later. 
And so there is this incredible irony in the story that God provides a substitute for another man's son, but not his own. God's own son will willingly die there in that place 2,000 years later as our substitute, as a sacrifice for our sin. And so I love this moment as that comes together in your mind because you realize it seemed like we were studying Abraham, really we're studying Jesus. Seemed like we were learning about Isaac. Really, we were learning about Jesus because that's what it's all about. The story of Isaac is preparing us for Jesus. It's teaching us about what Jesus will do. Yes, Isaac was delivered. Jesus will not be. He will be the ultimate and final Isaac who will go the whole way, who will die as a substitute for our sins in our place. But we're not there yet. We still have a lot of ground to cover. And so we're going to come back next week and we're going to do the whole rest of the Old Testament, Law, King, and Hope. We're going to see where things go after Abraham as we lead the way to Jesus. Now, I know that we covered a lot this morning. I know that it can bring a lot of questions to your mind. And so I'm going to close this in prayer and then I'm going to stay up here. If you have questions about any of this material, come on up. Let's talk about it. Let's make sure that you're following this material so that you'll be ready for next week as we do the rest of the Old Testament. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are a good and mighty God of love. We thank you that you created this earth and indeed the entire universe as a gift for us. We praise you and we thank you that you chose to make us in your image. You knew how bad we would blow that, but still in grace you chose to make us in your image and to grant us this world to rule it on your behalf. We praise you and we thank you for the value and dignity that you have created in our lives. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would be at work in our lives today as we think about the revolt of humanity, as we think about the promise made to Abraham. I pray that you would fill us with a spirit of gratitude. I pray that you would help us to think about how incredible it is that you did not just snap your finger and wipe out humanity in that moment we sinned. That is what we deserve. And yet instead, you promised a solution. And even though Adam and Eve and and Abraham couldn't have imagined it, that solution would cost the life of your son. And we praise you for that. We thank you that Jesus is this incredible, surprising solution to the problem that we created. We thank you that you are a God of magnificent grace and love. And we are amazed at the story that you are telling in Scripture, how beautiful and wonderful it is. Thank you that you love us. Thank you most of all for the gift of your son, Jesus. In his name and for his glory, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week. Come on up if you've got questions.